Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Text to which I'd like to turn our attention is just two verses, verses 7 and 8 of Proverbs chapter 3. I once heard a wise pastor friend of mine say that it's God's grace to him that he was called to proclaim the message of the gospel each week because that's the message that he needs to hear most. And I find that true every week during sermon prep, but perhaps have not felt that as acutely as I have this week in preparing a sermon on pride and being wise in one's own eyes. I can run through the story of my life and I can recount many embarrassing stories of me thinking that I was wiser than I actually was. Indeed, yesterday I found myself in the unusual position of becoming my own sermon illustration. And uh, my brother-in-law and I met at my property to cut down a big tree, a couple of big trees actually. He pulled out his chainsaw, which was old, beat up, paint worn off, cracks in it. And I remarked, I've got a bigger one in the shop if you want to use that one. Little manly chest inflation right there. He said, well, how big's the bar on yours? I said, 25 inches. I saw his was 21. And I went to pull mine out, which was a 300 series, which is only relevant because his was a 200 series. That means mine had more power. It had a fresh chain on it. It was primed and ready to go. I could really rip through some wood. So I went over there, proceeded to cut down a 50-foot red oak, went down with a big crash, and I felt like I was pretty hot stuff. I began to cut it up, and he went to the top of the tree where the little branches are with his little saw. I said, well, I'm going to go to the trunk. I'm going to do the real work. So I roared through the trunk, and I got almost all the way through my first cut, and that big trunk rotated on me, pinched my blade. I had thousands of pounds of tree pinching my bar in place. It was not going to move. And so I had to walk over, tap my brother-in-law on the shoulder, and ask him to use his small, weaker little chainsaw to come cut mine out of the tree stump with all of my horsepower and longer bar. And at that moment, I knew I had become my own sermon illustration. And I trust that we've all felt that way. We've all had moments where God uses circumstances to show us we're not quite as wise as we think we are. And moments where we have to pull our foot back out of our mouth. Moments where we have to bring ourselves down a peg or two. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What does it mean for us to be wise in our own eyes? What does pride do to us? What does, how does pride blind us? And instead, what are the benefits of choosing humility, which is indeed the path of wisdom, the path of godliness? So let's read. I'll begin at the beginning of chapter 3 in Proverbs, because it's so good for us to hear again, and I'll read through the first eight verses. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find good favor and success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh 
and refreshment to your bones. Let us pray to our good God. Holy Father, we pray what can be a dangerous prayer and ask that you will make us humble people, that you would remove from us pride, help us to not be wise in our own eyes, but to be fully dependent upon you, just as your son was. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Let's begin by looking at verse 7, and we'll see the description of a prideful person. The, the description, how does the proverb writer describe an arrogant person? You could manifest pride in all sorts of different ugly ways, but the most common description of an arrogant fool is they are wise in their own eyes. They have a high estimation of themselves, particularly their own reasoning, their own intellect, their own wisdom. They're not the kind of person that needs the input of others. <laughs> Why would they? They already know everything they need to know. Wherever they go, they just happen to be the smartest person in the room. They know how to solve everybody's problems. They know how to fix the economy. They know how to fix the legislature and fix the culture and fix Hollywood, and they know how to fix the church. It's surprising, but they know everything. But let's not stop there. There are many other ways that Proverbs describes the prideful fool. The author promises us that a prideful man will have dishonor. The prideful man will have dishonor. Proverbs 11 verse 2 says this, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. That's the loss of reputation, the loss of respect because of some dishonorable action. And we have examples of this all throughout the Bible. The first example was Satan himself. Jesus says that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And that was because the devil's pride caused him to attempt to overthrow God and to steal his very glory. On Sunday mornings, we've recently heard about the first king of Israel, Saul, and how pride led him to sacrifice when he was not authorized to do so. And that was to his disgrace. Disgrace which eventually led from the very kingdom to be ripped from his hands. Similarly, I recently reread the book of Esther. And in it you see a wicked man named Haman. Haman was driven by self-glory and selfish ambition. He was never satisfied with just some of the praise. He wanted all of the praise from everyone all the time. And when he didn't get it, he was ultimately disgraced. He was forced to parade around town in the king's robes, the man that he hated most. He was shamed. He was disgraced because of his pride. I read a similar story this week that I think humorously illustrates this proverb. There's a man named Don Shula that has more NFL uh, wins than any other coach in history. The only other active coach to be in the ballpark is Bill Belichick at the Patriots, and he would have to win 70% of his games for the next six years to get even close to Don Shula. So Don Shula's kind of a big deal. And Shula likes to tell this story about a trip that he took during the offseason with his wife. They went up to Maine, a little quiet town, trying to think that they could relax anonymously. And it was raining when they got there, so they decided to go see a movie. And when they went into the movie theater, it had not yet started. The lights were still up. And the small group of people in the theater, when they saw them walk in, they began to applaud. 
And after they sat down, Don Shula leaned over to his wife and he says, I guess there's no place where I'm not known. And his wife smiled and added, and loved, dear. And a man nearby reached over and shook Don Shula's hand. And Don Shula said, I I have to admit, I'm kind of surprised that you all know me here. And the man said, oh, am am I supposed to know you? We're just happy to see you folks. Because the owner of the movie place said he wasn't going to start the movie until two more people showed up. When pride comes, disgrace will come. So do not be wise in your own eyes, or you will end up with dishonor and shame. Second, Proverbs not only says the prideful man will have disgrace, Proverbs also says he will be punished. A prideful man will be punished. Proverbs 16.5 says that everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And be assured, he will not go unpunished. Pride is not merely annoying to God. It's not slightly missing the mark. It is an abomination to God. That means he hates it. It disgusts him. It's an offense to him. It's a high-handed sin against God himself. And therefore, it will not go unpunished. God will act. Similarly, a few verses later, God tells us that pride goes before destruction. And that a haughty spirit goes before the fall. The prideful man walks right into his own destruction and he will stumble. He will fall. Like we mentioned before in the case of Saul, his arrogance provoked God. And it led not only to the kingdom being taken from his hand, but also the Holy Spirit being removed from him. His special anointing to reign over the kingdom of God was removed. And eventually his own life and the life of his sons were taken. Saul's pride came before a terrible fall. Likewise, in the book of Esther, Haman was not only forced into disgrace by having to parade around Mordecai in the king's garments, but Haman ended up being hanged on the very set of gallows that he had built for Mordecai. His pride came before a terrible fall. And sometimes this pride-driven fall comes quickly, and it brings to onlookers a sense of justice and satisfaction. Right? You're sitting in traffic, somebody gets annoyed and impatient, and they decide to zoom down the shoulder, and they just happen to pass right by a cop who pulls them over and tickets them immediately. Right? That brings a little smile to your face to see immediate fall of the prideful. And we like it when we see that, so long as it's immediate for someone else and not for us. But other times, indeed most of the time, pride-driven falls come slowly. Like the man that gains a little power over time and starts to think and act like he's invincible. And only after decades does he come tumbling down. Israel's king Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26 is an example of this. He, he reigned for 52 years and he was a great king at the start. But over time he began to rely on his own strength and wisdom. In fact the text says, quote, he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. You see, he disobeyed God, and he relied on his own wisdom, and he was prideful in his own estimation of himself. And he was in turn stricken with leprosy, which therefore meant he was banished from the temple, and he had to live by himself for the rest of his days. A sad end to a king that began so well. And we must remember that just because we start well, it doesn't mean that we will end well. 
Pride is a danger to both the young and the old. And we must remember that God will punish pride. That the prideful will stumble, even if that stumble comes in the next life. Third, not only is a prideful man promised disgrace and punishment, but the prideful man is described as someone that stirs up strife. That's what Proverbs 28, 25 says. The prideful man stirs up strife. He promotes trouble and discord. He's good at ruffling feathers, getting under people's skin. He's good at making waves. That's a prideful man. You see, a prideful man has himself at the center of his own universe, as everyone else around him can tell. Pride is like bad breath. Everyone around you knows you have it, but you may not notice. You're oblivious. And when you're blind to your own pride, when you've gone nose-deaf to your own offensiveness, you'll do things that stir up trouble, that bring strife. You'll speak condescendingly to others. You'll speak unkindly. You'll lack compassion. You'll demand from others what you would never do yourself. You're like the Pharisees whom Jesus condemned for tying up burdens on people that they themselves would never lift their pinky to help carry. Likewise, the prideful wants special treatment. You know? I know the rules say that I can't do that, but I was hoping you'd let me do it this time. I know that everyone else is supposed to do this, but I'd really like to do that. And what they're saying is that they are, they're exceptional. I'm not in a class like everyone else. I deserve to be treated differently. And that's pride. A prideful person wants preferential treatment. They want extraordinary favor for the only reason that they themselves think they're special. Or here's another pride marker that always stirs up strife. A prideful person is wise in their own eyes, and so that means that they're never wrong. They have all the right answers for everyone's problems, and the whole world, the government, the president, the mayor, the pastor, would have all their problems go away if they would just come talk to me. That's the fool that's wise in their own eyes. Have you met someone like this? I know I have. And when they're confronted with their own inadequacy, they never own up to it. The problems are never their fault. They will excuse it to the very end. They'll blame someone else. It's not my fault. I didn't have all the information. You see, if I had had the full picture, then I could have told you exactly what to do. Or, well, they didn't do it exactly like I told them, so it failed because they didn't listen to me enough. If they had just done it exactly like I told them, it would have worked. Pride makes a person a Mr. or Mrs. Know-it-all. And they're therefore able, unable to say, I was wrong. I ran across a poem recently by a Greek professor from 100 years ago named Amos Russell Wells. And he talks about this Mr. Know-it-all. He says he can memorize long orations and he regards the work as play. His masterful dissertations the clearest of thought convey. His speeches are never the weaker for the lack of a suitable word. In fact, he's the readiest speaker you've probably ever heard. He never was known to stutter, and his voice is vibrant and strong. And yet, three words he can never utter. Those three little words, I was wrong. Have you met someone like this? Someone that 
cannot admit that they're wrong. Someone that can't say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I know I have. In fact, I often find myself playing that part. I know I should ask forgiveness from someone, but I delay because I'm just so mad about what they did to me. That's my pride. I'm more concerned about me and my mistreatment about, than about what I've done to them. I'm more upset about the sin committed against me than the sin I've committed against God. And you know what that means, right? It means I deserve death. That's what we read previously. Pride is an abomination to God and that God will punish See, I'm like Adam in the garden. I've plucked the fruit, and in my pride, I want to hide behind my fig leaves. I want to hide in the bushes, and I want to blame it on that woman over there. Blame it on someone else. But God sees everything, and he knows the pride in my heart. He, know, he knows how upset I get when I don't get my way, how frustrated I get when people mess up my schedule, how grumpy I get when people don't take my advice, listen to my opinion. Well, that's my ugly pride. But the good news is that we have a Savior that was not prideful. He didn't consider himself better than any of us. In fact, he willingly came down. He stooped down to us. He became a servant, as we read earlier in Philippians 2. He washed the feet of his disciples, the dirtiest part. And he promises to wash us, even our dirty, prideful hearts, if we would but turn away from our pride and look to him in faith, that's all we have to do is just receive the gift of forgiveness from him. To believe in the atoning work that he's done on the cross and to have our abominable pride wiped clean. That's the good news of God, that we're not bound to a fate of pride-fueled destruction, but we can have life in his name. I hope that you will choose that choice, choose that path of wisdom. Now that we've looked at the description of pride from a few different angles, let's look at the call of humility. The call of humility. The second part of verse 7 tells us what we need to do rather than being wise in our own eyes. It says, verse 7, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. The fear of the Lord is a recurring theme in this book, and I've covered it a little bit already. But because the fear of God is like a diamond with many beautiful facets in it, we will tonight rotate that diamond ever so slightly and look at how the fear of the Lord relates to pride, how it relates to being wise in our own eyes. And rather than thinking we know it all, rather than being wise and puffed up in our arrogance, we're instead called to fear the Lord. And by fearing Him, having a proper estimation of ourselves as it relates to Him, our Creator, and also our fellow creatures, we can have a proper view of ourselves, and we begin to grow in humility. A little side note here. Notice, I didn't say a low view of ourselves. I said a proper view of ourselves. See, the fear of the Lord gives us a right view. We don't need to have a false humility that grovels in the dirt and acts like we're worthless and nothing. That's another mutant form of pride. Think. I don't have the right to speak. I don't have the right to act. No, you're a child of the king. You can act as such. It's not necessarily sinful for us to know our proper perspective, our, our proper place. It's not sinful for us to 
know that we're the smartest person in a room. For example, I hope my child's, my kindergarten son's teacher is the smartest person in the room. The problem is, is when she begins, if someone begins to think they're better than everyone else. It's different. That's where the pride comes in. A humble person doesn't think he's worthless or dumb or useless. Rather, a humble person keeps his God-given talents and abilities in the proper perspective. The perspective of the fear of the Lord. So what does it look like for someone to not be wise in their own eyes and to fear the Lord? Well, a person describes that humble person in several ways. First, a humble person is a peacemaker. A humble person is a peacemaker. Rather than the prideful fool that we've discussed, discussed above, the person who brings strife, the person that brings trouble, the prideful person, rather than being the person that ruffles feathers, a humble person seeks to bring godly peace wherever they go. They speak with kindness rather than hatred, even when they themselves are sinned against. And they can do this because they know that they have first been shown the kindness of the Lord. Unlike the prideful man, a humble person can be a peacemaker because he doesn't seek to self-promote. He's not trying to insert himself in every conversation. They'll follow Proverbs 27 too, which says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth. Let a stranger and not your own lips. Prideful posturing. A desire to be heard and seen. A desire to be retweeted and liked for the sake of vanity. All those things will begin to fade when we begin to embrace the fear of the Lord. We don't need the praise of others when we have heard from God in Christ, well done, my beloved. A humble man or woman of God is able to bring unity and peace wherever they go because they have dethroned themselves from the center of their universe. And it's only when we place God back in the center of our lives that we can have rightly ordered relationships in the rest of our life. And we can begin to place the well-being and benefit of others ahead of ourselves. Humble people are peacemakers. Second, not only are the humble peacemakers, Proverbs says that a humble person will be honored. A humble person will be honored. They will have honor. Listen to the words of Proverbs 15, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of instruction, and before honor comes humility. Likewise, Proverbs 18, 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. A person that's truly humble will be honored because they will begin to have real relationships with people. People will want to be friends with a humble person. Not merely business acquaintances or networking connections. They'll have real companionship. And because people want to be around a humble person, because they enjoy the company of humble people, they'll begin to see that they'll grow in honor. You see, in a world dominated and run by the boastful, it is refreshing to spend time with someone not absorbed with themselves. And it's easy to see how they'll grow in honor. When people like you, they'll begin to praise you. They'll begin to promote you. They'll begin to see your best interests taken care of. They'll want to see your name protected and your reputation defended. And slowly but surely, a humble person will be seen as honorable, will gain a good reputation, will be thought of as honorable. 
Unlike the disgrace that's promised to the arrogant fool that we discussed above. Unlike Saul that was brought low in his arrogance, the lowly shepherd boy David was shown the grace and honor of God when he was elevated to be king over God's people. Unlike Haman who was hanged on his own gallows because of pride, Mordecai waited at the gate in order to try and assist Esther. And even when Esther had the ear of the king himself, Mordecai didn't seek to promote his own safety and well-being, but promoted the well-being of the nation ahead of himself. And because of his humility, at the end of the book, he was greatly honored. Listen to the words, the closing words from the book of Esther. The king had imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all of the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to the king, And he was great among the Jews and popular among the multitude of his brothers. Why? Because he sought the welfare of the people and he spoke peace to all the people. Sounds like a humble man. Mordecai was a peacemaker and he received honor because he was a humble man that feared the Lord more than he feared man. Third, Proverbs says that a humble person will be a peacemaker, a humble person will have honor, but also a humble person will have life. A humble person will have life rather than the promised demise of an arrogant fool. Proverbs 22.4 says that the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Life itself is a reward for humility. And this makes sense, right? An arrogant man thinks he's invincible and will do things that will risk his life. But a humble person will recognize their own mortality and will do things, will avoid things that unnecessarily risk death. An arrogant fool will continue down the path of foolishness, the path that leads to destruction. But a humble person will see danger and will fear the Lord and will turn from the path of death. This is true in the realm of the practical, but it's also true in the realm of the spiritual. If you're boastful of your own strength and understanding, if you think you're doing just fine in this world, I've got it under control, God. I don't need your help. I'm a pretty good person. You're actually coasting down the wide highway that leads to hell. But if you're aware of your own weakness, aware of your need for help, then you will see the salvation and the gift of forgiveness that's in front of you, and you'll jump on it. You'll see that Christ is the only way for you to be saved because you could never save yourself. That's what a humble, God-fearing Christian does. They come to God for help, and in doing so, they receive the promised life, the life that's promised to the humble. But in his kindness, God doesn't just grant quality of life in this world. He grants us eternal life in the next. Humility to repent and believe now will reap the reward of eternal life and blessedness later. I hope that you will believe in the Son and turn from your pride and turn from being wise in your own eyes and receive the promised life that's given to all those who are humble enough to receive it. I hope that you will. The humble person receives life, he receives honor, and he is a peacemaker. Now, lastly, let's look at verse 8 and see some of the blessings of humility. The blessings of humility. Again, listen to the Proverbs. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. For it will be healing to your flesh 
and refreshment to your bones. Notice here the underlying assumption in verse 8 that the physical and the spiritual are connected. Our physical, material bodies are connected to our spiritual, immaterial aspects of our being. If we are spiritually proud, then we will have dysfunction in our bodies. But if we're humble, then we will have healing in our flesh and refreshment in our bones. And that's a crucial connection. Let's press into that for a minute. How can a humble person have these tangible physical benefits? Well, for one, that's because with humility comes contentment. With humility comes contentment. A humble person is aware that they're better than nobody else. That they're not entitled to things that are better or nicer. They are content with the things that they've been given and with the circumstances that they've been given. And because of that supreme sense of contentedness with what God has chosen to give them, they're not always staying up late, fretting about what's going to happen next. They're not keeping their blood pressure up at dangerous levels, worried about things that are outside of their control and desiring things that they haven't been given. Contentment is a fruit of a humble soul and will heal your aching bones and your parched soul. Because that's exactly what happens when we covet the possessions and the circumstances of others. Our bones ache with jealousy and our souls become dry with bitterness. Nothing will satisfy us while we're coveting. We've set up an idol that promises satisfaction and healing, but in reality drives us further from God and further from genuine refreshment. Contentment is a real, tangible benefit that comes with God-fearing humility, and it will bring benefits not only to your soul, but to your body as well. But not only does humility bring contentment, it also casts out the fear of man. Humility casts out the fear of man. And thereby brings healing to our bodies and refreshment to our souls. You see, we're all tempted to fear man in some way, right? Maybe I'm afraid to be known as a sinner, and so we don't let people get close to me. Because they might actually find out I'm a sinner. We're afraid of being seen as unintelligent, so we plan ahead and we use our language. I, I think of a couple big words that I want to shoehorn into conversation so that I appear intelligent in front of all my friends. I'll use my strategic word here, I'll use a fancy argument there, and voila, people think I'm a genius. Or maybe you're desperately seeking affirmation from someone. Craving that someone would show you attention and you let your desire to feel liked drive you to do something that you would never ordinarily do. Or maybe you hate the thought of someone not liking you. Someone being mad at you. And that drives you to have crippling anxiety. You can't think of anything else. You can't get it out of your head. We've all done something like that. And when we're driven by man-fearing... We will never have healing in our bones and refreshment in our souls. That's because man-fearing inevitably ties our stomach up in knots. It makes our minds race. It makes our palms sweat. And it keeps us up at night. Our spiritual problem produces physical side effects. God tells us in Psalm 127 too, It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. 
Anxiety and worry is in vain. It's useless. It's like the breath on a cold morning. It's gone. But how does that verse end? Do you know that verse? 127.2 in Psalms. It ends. It says, but God gives to his beloved sleep. God provides rest. The rest that we so desperately crave. God promises the humble... Those that come to him in humility, he promises them rest. And he can do that because his son was meek and lowly. His son was humble. And he has earned the rest and healing that we so desperately desire. His son has died the death of pride and arrogance that we had all earned. And he has lived the perfect life of humility that we would never live. And so as I close tonight, I want to encourage you to come to Christ and see. Ask of him to make you a humble person. Not merely so that your body will feel better, though I hope it will, but so that you can see your king. And so by seeing him, finding true rest for your body and refreshment for your bones. I'll close with this, another another poem by Amos Russell Wells. He says, I went to the palace, a wonderful thing. I went to the palace called by the king. A herald would lead me, but fool in my pride, I sneered at his offer and waved him aside. How large was the palace, how loftily grand, what vistas of chambers on every hand. I wandered and wandered, all proud and alone, I wandered and wandered, but found not the throne. And still as I wander, O wearisome thing, I am in the king's palace, but I am far from the king. Don't let your pride blind you from the king's presence. Humble yourselves that you may see God. And for those of us that have come to faith, that have humbled ourselves to receive the gift of life from Christ's very hand, we have another opportunity to see our great king tonight. We can see in the table his humiliation, his Willingness to lower himself to the form of a servant. To become nothing. The almighty creator of the universe. To become as it were a slave. He willingly let his body be broken in the place of his people. And his blood to be shed in the place of his bride. Such is his humility. And all those that have come to faith are invited to join us. If you're like the humble saints in Acts 2 that were devoted to the apostolic teaching found in God's word, you're devoted to the fellowship of the saints and the breaking of the bread and the prayers, then we invite you to come. But if you have not yet come to Christ, then first submit yourself. Humble yourself before Christ by repenting and believing and see that he is ever ready to receive you. I'll pray and then our table servants will come. Holy Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the gift of life that we have because of your Son. We thank you for his humility, his willingness to become a servant, to become nothing, so that in him we might receive all things. Feed us tonight, Lord. Feed us by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Holy Father, we praise you and thank you for the gift of your Son who has taken upon himself the iniquity of us all. He has taken our pride, he has taken our boastfulness, he's taken our vanity, and he has crucified it to the cross. He has left it in the grave, and he has risen. And in him we have been raised to walk in newness of life. Lord, grant us your Holy Spirit's favor that we may walk in humility just as the Son has done in our place. 
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close tonight by singing hymn 234, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Hymn 234, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. As we depart, receive this benediction. May the fear of the Lord cast out all of your boastfulness and pride. And may you find healing in your bones and refreshment in your souls as you savor the humility of Christ our King. Amen. You are dismissed.